If you turn to Exodus chapter 9, second book in the Bible, not sure what page it is, I'm reading from the ESV. Verse 1, this is the first part of our reading, we'll do our second part just shortly. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on the man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air. And it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth." You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field and to save shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Ali's going to come up now and lead us in prayer. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt. 
both man and beast. Sorry, I lost my way there. Both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He and his servants, so that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Amen. We'll just ask Dom now to come up and deliver our sermon. Well, we've finished our summer series looking through Judges, looking at Gideon and Samson in particular, and so we're back to our journey through Exodus together. I wonder as we begin whether you've ever seen pictures of the Fabergé eggs. Here are just a few of them, hopefully, for you. There we are. They're a series of ornate eggs made by the Fabergé jewelers by one of the Tsars in Russia for his wife. And the amazing thing about them is they're all unique designs. No two of them are the same, and they all have these incredible, uh, lavish uh, designs to them, don't they? Well, we're here in Egypt where there is this whole collection of gods for everything. But God had promised to save his people, Israel, and he's called Moses to lead them to freedom so they can worship him. And the thing we find through Exodus is that freedom isn't being free to be God. That leads to ruin. We'll see that in Pharaoh. But freedom is belonging to and living under the gracious rule of God. And the one idea this morning as we pick up this journey in chapter 9 is that Israel's God is one of a kind. There are no other gods. He is the God of all the earth. And so I want to show you three things in this chapter this morning. Firstly, there's a power that hits different. We see that there's only one king. And we see that Pharaoh is sorry, not sorry. But firstly, there's a power that hits different. And if you turn your eyes to those first 12 verses, that's where we'll be. There's a power that hits different. I wonder if you've seen this recent news article about Taylor Swift's uh, Eras concert tour. Her recent concert in Seattle recorded a seismic activity equivalent to a 2.3 magnitude earthquake. That was 
in the article it just said 0.3. I'm, I'm guessing that the unit of measurement is magnitudes. Uh, it was 0.3 bigger than the activity caused from an American football game in 2011. But here's the comments of one geology professor. The shaking was twice as strong and absolutely doubled it. Well, here, God has a power that hits different. And the most powerful man on the earth, Pharaoh, is powerless before him. Look at verse 3. Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. So far, God has affected their water, their soil, their air. Now he's attacking their livestock. This affects their economy. It affects their food provision. It affects their transport. And it affects their gods. Apis was a bull god, worshipped in Memphis in particular. And the god Ammon was represented by a ram. And the point is to say to Egypt and all the people, these gods aren't gods. The Yahweh, Israel's God, is not a God amongst gods. He is one of a kind. But there's a divide being drawn, isn't there? The God is attacking Egypt and preserving Israel. Look at verse 4. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. It's a way of showing very clearly it's not a natural disaster, is it? There's a distinction. Nothing of the people of God will die. And there's the contrast. It's the contrast that's made right throughout Exodus, it's made right throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament too, that under God's rule, you will flourish. But if you reject and rebel against it, you'll find ruin. He said at the beginning of the journey of Exodus, this is God coming good on his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that I will make of you a great nation. I'll make of you a family through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And the Lord set a time, verse 5, look there with me, saying tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. The Lord is one of a kind. He does this. He'll also undo it. All the while, Pharaoh is powerless and does nothing. But how will Pharaoh react? There, verses 6 and 7, we find out, don't we? The next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Pharaoh could not humble himself before God. And so a new plague comes, doesn't it? Just a few verses further down. A new kind of plague, because now the plague is affecting his people's health. 
at verse 9. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh will be willing to gamble his people's livelihood to keep power for himself. I wonder whether that feels like a familiar feeling. Someone in position of authority who would be willing to gladly gamble their people's livelihoods if that's what it takes to grasp hold of power for themselves. Verse 10, so they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians couldn't stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Pharaoh has looked to these magicians for a show of power in the face of his weakness But their power has been undermined, hasn't it? And they've just looked weaker and weaker every time. Back in chapter 7, they're challenged to summon a serpent. And they can, but it's swallowed by Moses and Aaron. Later, the Nile is turned to blood and frogs are summoned. And they can imitate it, but they can't reverse it. They have enough of a power to be able to copy what they've done, but not enough to reverse it. The thing that would actually be useful... In chapter 8, they simply couldn't produce gnats, and so they say, this is the finger of God. And by the time that flies were summoned, the phone stops ringing. And now they're back. And in the face of the plague of boils, they're hit by the plague too. Israel's God has shut Pharaoh up, And he has shut up his magicians too because he has a power that hits different. Israel's God is one of a kind and the great power of the world and all of his so-called gods and all of his magicians are powerless before him. There's a power that hits different. But secondly, we see that there's only one king. It's estimated that in the world there is somewhere between 250,000 and 400,000 Elvis Presley impersonators. And there's one great universal truth about all of these characters, and that's that they are never that great, are they? Because there is only one king. And Pharaoh has been impersonating a god, but now he is up against God himself. And he will find too that there is only one king and it wasn't him. Yahweh, Israel's God, is one of a kind. Look here with me at verse 13. We see this. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I'll send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants And your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. He wants him to know he is one of a kind. 
Back in chapter 8, verse 22, God has given his reasoning for one of the plagues there, saying that I want you to know that I am a God in the land. I am God in Egypt as well as over Israel. You need to know I'm not just some local divinity for these people. I'm God in your land. Now he wants him to know something further. I want you to know I am God over all the earth. Because there's a reality that whether you believe in him or not, you'll not escape the reality of his reign. That really is irrelevant. He is God over all the earth. And look at how he continues this now. Verse 15, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. That's a flex, isn't it? I could take you any time anywhere I've raised you up he says to show you my power so that my name be proclaimed in all the earth and so God has a purpose bigger than destruction doesn't he and so here it is there's three parts to it I wonder if you see that in that verse 16 there I have raised you up God says He has allowed Pharaoh to rise because he has got over all the earth, not just Israel. I've raised you up, he says. But secondly, he says, I've raised you up to show my power. The most powerful man on earth, one who is seen as and referred to and treated as a God, is totally powerless before him. I've raised you up to show my power. But thirdly, he says, I've raised you up to show my power, so my name be proclaimed in all the earth. And at the heart of all that God does in Exodus is his mission. Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God, puts it like this. He says, Yahweh, Israel's God, is the Exodus God. Yahweh is the God who sees, hears, and knows about the suffering of the oppressed. Yahweh is the God who hates what he sees and acts decisively to bring down the oppressor and release the oppressed so that both come to know him, either in the heat of his judgment or in glad worship and service. Pharaoh's boasts, then, need silencing. This is what God says in verse 17, isn't it? You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. The wrestler, Ric Flair, has this great saying he used to love to wheel out to anyone who would dare challenge him. To be the man, you've got to beat the man. I.e., until you beat me, you beat no one. And Pharaoh is O for life versus God. We've seen that already here in chapter 9. He's O for life versus God, yet he still wants to be treated like a God. That simply will not end well, will it? He now needs to be silenced from his proud boasting that he is God. I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name be proclaimed in all the earth. And yet here is a wonderful turning point. Look closer there with me at verse 20. Because things are changing here in the land. 
Some Egyptians follow God, not Pharaoh, and are blessed rather than cursed by following Pharaoh. Then whoever feared the Lord, uh, feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. Some listen. Some have stopped listening to Pharaoh. Shows us a wonderful truth, doesn't it? That the promises and the blessings of God's kingdom are open to all who are willing to recognize him as God alone. There is only one king, isn't there? Pharaoh's power had come from God. Pharaoh's power was less than God's. And Pharaoh's power could be taken in a moment. Ironically, Elvis Presley declined that title of the king of rock and roll. After his first time opening in Las Vegas in 1969, a reporter referred to him as the king in a press conference. To which he replied, looking to the back of the room and seeing Fats Domino, no, that's the real king of rock and roll. Elvis rejected the title king and Pharaoh should have rejected the idea that he was God. There was only one king and it wasn't him. Yahweh, Israel's God, is one of a kind. There's a power that hits different. We see there's only one king. And then lastly, we see that Pharaoh's sorry, not sorry. Great article from the New York Times from 2001 by Bruce McCall was called The Non-Apology Apology. And it gives a number of suggestions for non-apology apologies that you might offer. Here's one for having received a parking ticket. Nobody is sorrier than me that the police officer had to spend his valuable time writing out a parking ticket on my car. Though from my personal standpoint, I know for a certainty that the meter had not yet expired. Please accept my expression of deep regret at this unfortunate incident. It is hoped that your dismissal of this ticket will mark both an end and a new beginning for both parties, marked by a mutual resolve to avoid such regrettable situations in the future. Or perhaps this excuse for a late essay. I'm deeply sorry that you've decided that my term paper was not submitted in time, even if the fact that my watch had stopped would, as you know, hold up in any legitimate court of law. Nonetheless, I wish to express my heartfelt sympathy for the university's distress in believing that its rules have been violated, and trust that as a token of your equal goodwill, my term paper will be accepted. Pharaoh's apology here is a non-apology apology, and we know that that's so because his actions don't change. Look at verse 27 there with me. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. This time I've sinned. I and my people are in the wrong. You're in the right. Well, actually, Pharaoh had sinned every time, hadn't he? He's sort of owning it, and yet he chucks his people under the bus too. And while his people are implicated in the slavery and oppression that's perpetrated in Egypt, and they're certainly culpable for that, 
Pharaoh has ultimate responsibility, doesn't he? And Pharaoh is the one setting himself up as God. Pharaoh seems to be genuinely seeking rescue from God, or at least closer towards it, doesn't he? But close isn't the same as being there. Moses said to him, As soon as I've gone out of the city, I'll stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there'll be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. The plague is to stop so that Pharaoh knows that all the earth is God's, not Pharaoh's, not his powerless imitation God's. I wonder if you ever caught or remember the cartoon Roadrunner. Well, in the cartoon, the Roadrunner annoys the coyote. He just always wants to kill him and be done with him. And Wiley Coyote has these grand plans to get rid of him and uses all kinds of weapons and traps, all bought from one place, Acme Corporation. And if you've ever seen the cartoon, you find out they never deliver. They always let him down. They usually backfire on Wiley Coyote. These here are Acme gods. They never deliver. They always let them down. They always backfire on them. But I doubt, for many of us sat here, we're sat here thinking, well, you know, the God with the crocodile head, the God with the beetle for a face, tell me more about that fella. How do I get into worshipping a God like that? I don't think many of us are thinking that, are we? However, career, success, affirmation, approval, promotion... Comfort, perfect relationships, perfect body. Maybe that's a different story. Maybe those gods have more of a pulling power for us. And yet, they never deliver either, do they? They always let us down too. They always end up backfiring on us. You find it's never enough. You always need more that you can't keep hold of it, that someone else's just looks better. And Moses sees through this apology, doesn't he? He's no closer to submitting to God and letting the Israelites go. I know, verse 30, that you don't yet fear the Lord. And why? We find out in verse 31 and 32. Seem like strange details to be put in brackets there for us. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emma were not struck down, for they're late in coming up. They have an insurance policy. Not all of the crops have been killed off. There's still a hope in the back pocket, isn't there? And so look how quickly Pharaoh changes his tune from verse 28. Look at verse 34 there with me. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Discomfort had led Pharaoh to recognize his sin. But as soon as comfort returns, he feels he has no need of God anymore. And I wonder if we're honest whether we might recognize something in that. That discomfort leads him to recognize his need. As soon as comfort returns, 
feels he has no need for God anymore. And so he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he didn't let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. He slips back into those old ways again. Pharaoh seems closer to turning to God for salvation, but his behavior shows he's sorry, but not sorry. Exodus shows that God is one of a kind, that he is the only God, that he is God in all the earth, that he's not a God amongst the gods. Think of how differently this story could have gone if Pharaoh could have accepted that. He could have said, you know what? I'm ditching these other gods. They're not gods. They've done nothing for me. They've not delivered me a single time through any of these plagues. Your God, I'll follow you. But he doesn't. God is the rescuer of his people. He's the rescuer of his people then, now, and forever. So we're left to ask, well, how do we take hold of that rescue this morning? Jesus, in John's Gospel, chapter 14, says this. Jesus said to him, he's talking to his disciples, they're wondering about where he's going and what's going to happen next. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus was and is and will always be the way, the truth, the life, the way to know the one true God, the one of a kind. He's not a God amongst others. He is the only God. He is this God we're thinking of here. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among uh, men by which we must be saved. So the only thing we do, and we take hold of that rescue, the only thing that we do is to believe what Jesus has done for us and ask he would do it for us. And to know and to trust and rely on, he's not an acme God. He will deliver. He won't let you down. He will come good on his promises. And so, if you haven't yet come to a place of trusting in Jesus in this way, will you call out to him for rescue? Romans 10 verse 9 to 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Will you call out to him for rescue? And for those who have come already to put your trust in Jesus, and you're seeking to follow him, is God really one of a kind for you just now? Or might he just have drifted slightly towards being a god amongst other gods? And maybe this is a moment to recommit yourself 
and acknowledge him again as one of a kind, the one who is a rescuer of his people then, now, and forever, but who is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But I tell you, if you've seen me, you've now seen that God, your rescuer. Let's pray, and then we will continue in worship together by singing another couple of songs that will respond to what we've thought about.